G'day, it's Russell Howcroft here. I'm the Chief Creative Officer of the Sayers Group and a founding partner. At Sayers, we believe all business, all good business, starts with a fantastic conversation. So we thought, well, let's create a podcast and let's call it Conversations. We hope you enjoy this one. Okay. All right. So, hi. Hi. So we're, we're with the formidable Holly Ransom, Um uh, for a sales conversation. So, um, Holly, hi. Hi, good to see you. You too. Now, um, quick intro. So, um, Holly is the CEO of Emergent. It's her business. Um, where she, It's all about leadership consulting, specialising in disruptive strategy. So, we'll get to that, I'm sure. Also, Holly's chair of Pride Cup Australia and a board director of the Port Adelaide Footy Club. Um, so, there's plenty just in that. There's plenty for us to have a chat, <laughs> a chat about, Holly. Now, what we like to do on the sales conversation is I'm going to play you some sounds. Well, this is Freddie. Freddie's the producer. I'm going to play you, I think we've got five, okay. five sounds. Purpose, I mean, I don't think you and I are going to have a trouble having a chat, but the purpose of this is just to relax into a sound and then I want you to tell me which one you feel best um, when you project yourself to a place having a chat with me. So let's have the first sound. There we go. So, Holly. Oh, nice options. Yeah, yeah. So, I, look, I fancy having a chat to you anyway, really. I mean, whether it's um, <laughs> by a fire, on a beach, uh, what do we have there? Pub, a boat, forest, I think. So, um, where, where do you like to go to have a, just a good old chinwag? Oh, I think particularly maybe because it's getting cold and actually, Russ, when I think back to one of the places where we've crossed paths historically, <laughs> I can't really go past fire. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my goodness me. How much fun was space? Now, so what Holly was referring to was a um, event, pre-pandemic event called mm. Space. So just uh, look, tell us about space. Yeah, so uh, CJ Holden, uh, Adam Ferrier and myself, three we, we describe ourselves always as the three most unlikely co-collaborators. We're very different people who each had a passion for sort of wanting to inject, bring together a creative community in Australia and talk with a, a positivity and an optimism about how we kind of future-proof the country. Uh, and so Adam, I think, was coming from a place of being frustrated around creativity and just mm-hmm. the, the need to see more of that injected and, and celebrated within business. CJ, coming from an event design standpoint, went, oh, my gosh, we need to think differently about how we bring people together and how we immerse them and how do we transform that. And mine was probably the frustration around feeling like we're in a bit of a broken record conversation, same yep. people holding the microphones, yes. talking to the same people um, and, and really not having, you know, putting people where ideas can collide and unlikely conversations can happen. Un, unlike-minded conversations. Yeah, and, um, and I have to say it was designed beautifully and you chaired it beautifully. Um, it, was a, it was actually formidable. It was a really awesome lineup of people. And I think what was amazing, I mean, speaking to sort of the, the diversity of people that were there all across the country, mm. all different occupations, all different stages of life. Um, and, you know, the idea was come with an open-mindedness and a desire to learn, but come with something to contribute and offer to the community as well. And yep. so it's this nice kind of, you know, two-way conversation and exchange between people where I, I'm still astounded how many business partnerships started out of it, how many yeah. friendships started out of it that remain really tight today. Um, and where I mentioned fire is because one of the things we asked people to do when they arrived is to sort of basically 
burn their their job title and their yep. description and the way they might have defined themselves on their way in and just embrace the kind of openness and a much more freewheeling structure than probably most people had been immersed in. Yeah, and it, and it worked. So I and I presume that the pandemic got in the way. It did, unfortunately. So yeah. we that first summit, to your point, or first unconference as we called it, was 2019. And then obviously pandemic, we had one plan for 2020. It mm-hmm. wasn't to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, unfortunately, you know, several years of just not having certainty around the viability of being able to do events. Yeah. We, we planned probably, gosh, I'd, four or five times different versions. I mean, you might remember us, you joined us for Australia's biggest virtual dinner party. Oh, yeah. So we found ways yep. of adapting and trying to keep the community together. But the opportunity to do that, unfortunately, by the time we got through the pandemic, it, in that format, it just wasn't viable to move forward. We yeah. will be back. I have absolutely no doubt. Well, a brand was built. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and uh, it was built, you know, I'm not not overnight, but gee, pretty quickly. I mean, and you're, you're right. Um, I was involved in a startup that was birthed at... Um, at space, so we created the grid as a result of of space. That's right, I'd forgotten that came from there. Yeah, and um, and of course the grid was all about um, creating an event in Melbourne or events in Melbourne around bringing together technology, design, creativity um, in order to deal with the new economy. Um, and the pandemic hasn't been that helpful with the grid either. But still, no. I, I still hold a candle up, and I'm still very you know hopeful that I can get the thing going because I reckon our city needs it. Absolutely agree. Yeah, I think those combinations, to your point, you know, more of that cross-pollination too, that idea of let's not play in our lanes, let's try and share learnings and have people come together and find value somewhere in the middle. Right. So how does Emergent make money? Uh, So a bunch of different ways. Um, So we do a lot of work bringing together and actually curating conversations for different organisations and industries all around the world. So to your point around one of my big beliefs is until we change the conversation, we can't change the outcomes. And Mm -hmm. so if we actually haven't got, you know, different structures um, to how we think about learning setup, conversation flow, design of experiences, who's on stage, who's in the audience, how are we getting them to gel? We're not actually going to get a different business outcome. So we do a lot of work kind of curating um, summits in that regard. My area of passion is in leadership development. So I spent a lot of time working in strategy in the early part of my career, uh, only uh, to get a little bit frustrated that all t- too often the strategy or the, the transformation and change, which tended to be the area of strategy I was in, mm-hmm would sit in a drawer and gather dust somewhere or, you know, it would be quickly upended by another organisational <laughs> reconfiguration yeah. and uh, wouldn't see the light of day. And so um, increasingly, and, and we, you know this all too well, Russ, as I'm sure many of your listeners do, what's astounding for all the growth and learning and without question the exponential growth in human capital that we have year on year and decade on decade is the stats around nailing change. Uh, and getting transformation right and executing on strategy are still bleak. Yeah. So tell me more about that. So I think, you know, when I when I was looking at the data point, you, you kind of lead yourself to question, okay, it's it's oftentimes not for a lack of a really great strategy. You and I have both been in rooms where we've gone, oh, my gosh, we've just cracked that nut, finally. What a great vision, what a great customer proposition, what a great purpose, whatever it might be. But all too often it falls flat because of the ability to execute or the ability for leaders to inspire the followership that's needed or to, you know, the world you live in, Russ, mm-hmm. communicate mm-hmm. a compelling vision in a way that creates engagement with customers, that creates the, the resonance with partners to be able to take people on a journey and actually realise a commercial outcome. So for me, that was sort of where the inside of wanting to focus in on leadership and go, how do we build leadership capability came from? Because yeah. it ultimately does, for all the tech that's empowering our how more effectively... Um, the the need for 
great leadership capability, particularly to find new ways through problems mm. and better solutions to things, um, that's absolutely critical. I've been thinking recently that there isn't enough, so let's call it strategy as playbook. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, you can, you can be in those rooms and you can create the right strategy. But in the end, you've got to actually do something. Totally. Yeah, so I, th- I think that, you know, maybe we called that, you know, that's the tactical element of the plan, but maybe there's a different way to... And where I've sort of got to this on this is I want to know what is going to happen every single day. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like... so At a really practical level. At a, at, yep. at a practical level. And uh, so that's why I sort of quite like this idea of, you know, the playbook um, where, you know, dear colleagues, here's what we're going to do every single day. Which makes me think of footy. Yeah, nice. Yeah? Yeah. Or maybe every single week. Um, so you're, I mean, I, I learned a lot being a on a board of oh, a yeah. footy club. So I'm just going to try this one on mm-hmm. for, for size. So Port, Port Adelaide, great footy club, of course. Definitely. One of the things which I think I definitely learned was footy clubs are all about each individual knowing what they have to do on the, when it comes to the footy field, I mean. They've, they know what they have to do in order to perform for that team. Yeah, they know their role. Right. So, Holly, you're going to play on the wing. We need you – you've got to run 15Ks. We need you to get as deep as you can in defence. We need you – yeah, we'd like you to land maybe three tackles yeah. if you're doing a goal assist. So each individual's got the hurdles that they have to jump and they know exactly what to do or what a good game looks like. Mm-hmm. I, d- I feel like we don't do that in business. It's so interesting you say that um, and I like the playbook idea. One of the ways I often talk about this is sort of closing the thinking and doing gap. It's really easy to intellectualise this stuff or yeah. to know the idea but the idea that we're actually across the chasm to the doing I think is is all too often where we fall down or whether we, we stand on the edge and actually we all get too intimidated and don't decide to bother trying to traverse it. Um, and I completely agree that one of the things that's fascinating about being involved in footy for, for me is it is – such an interesting microcosm to look at leadership and look at culture and look at performance in part because the feedback loop is so public and it is so quick. Yeah. Every weekend you work out whether you're getting closer to right or right or not. Mm. <laughs> and, and to what you're talking about, one of the things that often, uh, you know, I'm, I'm struck by is how rare that same visibility or feedback loop is in business. It's so much more opaque. Right. We don't have that same ability to go to your point did so-and-so play their role? How are we tracking in the right direction in a real-time sense? Yes, we've mm. got maybe quarterly, annual type of targets, but week to week we don't have that same ability to right. go, is it working and can we calibrate it? What That's can we right. try differently? That's right. So you, you should have a personal playbook and a business playbook. Yeah. And just like in footy, the playbook says, here's what we need to do as a team and here's what you need to do as a player. Yep. It, it, I, I think it's a real – I mean, there, there will be organisations that are doing that and maybe they can email me and say, we're doing it. Yeah. But I'm not so, I'm not so sure there'd be very many that are – deep into I need four tackles from you and make sure you run 15Ks. And you're spot on and I I can send the research to you for some of the show notes but there's leadership study after leadership study that talks about the if you kind of think about where organisations break down, it's in role clarity. It's in the idea that I actually know either what the organisation's doing and we could all, if we went around the room and asked, you know, 15 different employees, we'd get 15 answers that were largely on the bullseye or secondly, that I know how my role plays in and mm. what my role is day-to-day, week-to-week as we move through it. So it's absolutely on point with what we see in the in the data out there. So let's keep talking about footy. Um, tell me more about what you've learned. Um, well, look, we should just, you know, do the shout-out. Youngest youngest person ever to join a footy club. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, good on you. 
It's a, you. I mean, that is a serious achievement. No question. That's a serious. I thought I was young and I was 45, <laughs> for goodness sake, when I joined mine. Anyway, so good on you, Holly. What else? What else have you learned? Oh, a lot. And I should say to that end, you know, good on me, but good on the club for being open to having different views. I and mean, that's a credit to our chairman, David Koch, and, and his view of really wanting different perspectives around the board table and acknowledging that, you know, we need that to be um, a, a footy club that can uh, understand and think through the challenges and the opportunities. I mean, when I joined the board, which I'm in my eighth year on the board now, you know, we were starting to turn our brains to the next generation of fans we could see that women's football was coming and we needed to be ready for that as an organization and so we were starting to make changes to think about you know what is how do we be future fit as a board in order that our football club you know can be future fit in that regard I've learned a lot I mean it's been fascinating uh you know it's been an extraordinary period to be involved in Port Adelaide Um, for those who know Port's history it's not all that long ago where the club came back together and so the journey to to work through that and and many know that was a really challenging and I think some people would use quite traumatic period in the club's history um, that was really challenging and credit to the leaders through that period and certainly subsequent to be in the position that we're in now where we are such a strong and resilient football club and where we're actually in a position where we're able to be um, thinking about, uh, you know, not just how do we shore ourselves up, but actually how do we make strategic investments in our growth. I mean, we're in the process of a, a $30 million redevelopment, which is really exciting. We've been 60,000 members for four years now. We were, um, I think, 25,000 yeah. when so I jo- joined the board, you know, all those years that. ago. Very Absolutely. Good. Very good. Um, you know, things like Never Tear Us Apart, it's probably one of the more iconic moments in sort of pre-match in, yep. in sport in Australia. So there's been some really beautiful elements of that. And, you know, I look at W um, coming into our culture and, and I know your football clubs had a W program for a little bit longer, but that cultural transformation, yep. you know, leading our bid for that licence, but then the integration, you know, 151 years of existing as an elite men's sporting organisation to then transform to all of a sudden having, you know, three teams playing it at um, the highest levels of their respective game yep. and injecting a whole set of diversity into our organisation and thinking about how do we set that up for success and that doesn't start on day one when all of a sudden we have enlisted a team of athletes and support staff and coaches to uh, to kick off the season. Mm. That starts 18 months earlier on how do we go on a learning journey together and how do we prepare ourselves and set the foundation for that to work right. I think one of the benefits that we had was the ability and and the intentionality to go and learn from everyone had gone before and really trying to be curious about what had worked and what hadn't. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a club out of the 14 that had a licence we hadn't spoken to by the time that we were in a position to start ours. We had everyone from the chairman of our club through to every player on our list in diversity and inclusion workshops for a year and a bit together prior to the arrival of our team, like all going on this journey of sort of upskilling and, and evolving together. Mm-hmm. And um, that's been transformational. It's been really exciting. When do you think we won't hear the words diversity and inclusion anymore? Oh, gosh. I mean, we're a long way off right. off, off that world. I know we talk about it and I, I hear people kind of say it all the time, you know, we look forward to making ourselves redundant in these sort of areas. We look forward to the day we don't have to have this conversation. And, you know, sadly, the, the data is that unfortunately the glacial pace of gender equality change is only getting slower. Um, we're, we're sort of not making tangible step change progress there. Um, when I think about the world that I exist in from a Pride Cup standpoint, so for those who don't know Pride Cup, we're a non-profit organisation that work in the LGBTI inclusion in sports space. Um, you know, we're talking about a population from a rainbow community of about 4 million Australians. Only 6% of them play sport because they don't feel safe and they don't feel they belong. Uh, and so those that, again, data points aren't getting meaningfully better. The mental health outcomes aren't getting meaningfully better. 
So we, we have a real challenge on our hands. There are absolutely points of light and I get encouragement yep. from them every day. There are leaders who are doing this really well inside their organisations. There are civic leaders that are doing this really well um, and they're just providing a different voice and a different, a more constructive uh, and positive conversation even uh, I- I as, a, as opposed to, and I'm, I'm thinking even the contrast, um, irrespective of your politics, I think it's, it's stark leadership contrast between our last Prime Minister and our current Prime Minister just on the tone of voice mm-hmm. on some of these issues. Um, so uh, those are, are examples of, I think, ways that actually start to move the dial and at least let's make sure the way that we're navigating this is like yeah. adults. <laughs> so I like uh, so you, you curate summits as part of Emergent and, yeah. and I imagine that part of that is just making sure the right people are on stage. I mean, that's what we're talking about. So do you think, do you think that we, we, you know, the big we, have done enough to actually make it clear to people that D&I, diversity... Yep is good for profit? I love that you've asked this question because I, I really don't think we have. No. And I also think we miss the mark on this conversation by the fact diversity is one part of it. What the data tells us, and for those who've, who've followed Amy Edmondson's work or haven't, she's someone worth following in this space around psychological safety. The thing that her research shows us is if you've got a homogenous group of people and then you've got a diverse set of people and you don't have psychological safety, so that term means basically... Is it safe to show up and be your whole self? Is it safe to take risk? Um, if you cannot have psychological safety, a homogenous group of people are going to outperform a diverse group of people every day of the week. Um, if you've got psychological safety, right. so it's safe to show up, make that contribution as the diverse person with the different perspective that you've got, what the data tells us is diverse team will outperform a homogenous team. Yep. And what I find really interesting to your point, you know, most comprehensive study of high performance that's been done in a corporate setting is Google's Project Aristotle, looking at what are the secret source ingredients of high performance. Not only did psychological safety come out number one, but they went as far to say, if you don't have it, doesn't matter if you've got all the rest of our top five characteristics, you cannot have high performance. And so for me, why I think this conversation around diversity inclusion, psychological safety and, and performance are going to uh, really dominate the next 10 years of business is because of this link. You want to get outcomes, you want to sustain outcomes. Mm-hmm. It becomes critical to think about have I got this sort of environment and then we know if I've got that sort of environment, diversity performs better in it. Right. So that's critical. You're making me think of um, Florida, Flor- Richard Flor- Richard Florida's work on creative cities yeah. uh, and, and successful cities. And uh, surprise, surprise, the most successful cities in the world uh, – Deeply diverse. Mm-hmm. Right? Doesn't surprise so, me. Yeah, and uh, what I mean by success, I'm, I actually mean economically successful. Uh, and I, and I, I genuinely don't think that the, the power of having de- diverse and including teams, organisations, cities, the economic power isn't um, communicated. And I think we still think it's nice to have, right? As yeah. opposed to commercially critical. Right. And, but if you make it commercially critical, then I think you're going to get faster change. Completely agree. Right? Yep. So, Which is a communication challenge, right? Well, maybe. I think, I've, yeah, it probably, it, yes, it probably is. But I think you need to, you've probably got to get the data around it, which you've got. You've just told me that. You've got the, da- you've got well, the data. There is an increasing body mm-hmm. of, of data, absolutely. Okay. So in order for my business, small, medium, large, city, state, country, to be more successful economically then this is what i've got this is what i have to do yep. and therefore the playbook becomes easier to write because the playbook isn't soft in language the playbook is hard in language totally and i think that probably the the 2.0 of that is what we know and i think the case needs to be made better 
The second bit is, is I do think we need to spend some more time on how do we help leaders to lead diverse and inclusive teams? Yep. Because it's it's a very different skill set. If we think about walking into a room where everyone looks like me, everyone's kind of got my same lived experience, hell, that's easier for me to lead. I <laughs> like know. I kind of know what they're going to say. It's kind of easier for me to coalesce people towards the same outcome. I'm not dealing with radically divergent opinions or very different kind of uh, ways of engaging or wanting to work. And so there is a piece around... We've got, to, we've got to help upskill people in how to lead a, a diverse team because in yep. fairness to people, it's probably not something they've necessarily experienced over their journey and over their rise or, or training in leadership through their history in yep. an organisation. I've often reflected on that very point in that um, many years ago, I was running a business, mm-hmm. we got into trouble and I, and I created a leadership team that all looked like me. So I'm not proud of it. Which is uh, so easy to do. Right. I, I think back and, you know, reflect on it and I go, yeah, well, that's actually quite interesting, isn't it? That that I felt comfy, I suppose. And, and you kn- would know this better than me, but when you look at kind of the, the psychological tropes that we, we fall into and are just innate in us as human beings, confirmation bias is, is a big one we've got to fight, right? right? There's, a, there's a natural tendency towards wanting to have our point of view confirmed and I think that is particularly heightened when we're facing into uncertainty. Because we're already getting enough of that pressure and, and playback from the world that we don't know or there's an unease about the fact that we don't feel as confident as a world that feels a little bit surer. And so part of me wonders whether this is even more of a challenge at this moment in time mm-hmm. um, by virtue of the circumstances we're dealing with sort of economically and socially. Yeah, I, I, do, I do need you to know we did very well. <laughs> it doesn't mean we wouldn't have done better, though. Hey, yeah. Holly. Yeah, no, <laughs> so I love it. Earlier, earlier you talked about um, being too intimidated to make that move. Um, you know, to make a leap. Um, so you might write the strategy, but to actually do the action, mm. you might feel too intimidated to do totally. it. I just wrote it down because I thought, I don't think Holly's been too intimi- intimidated, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> ever. So um, Fulbright, so the Fulbright Scholarship, I'm think- so tell us what that is, but then I'm thinking that must have had a degree of intimidation about it. Oh, yeah, and, and there's a whole story we can talk about in terms of intimidation. Um, I spent a whole year doing things I was afraid of as a social experiment on myself, so yeah. that was probably a way of, of building that muscle um, that, that's held me in good stead from that point forward. But Fulbright is an incredible um, global scholarship set up by William Fulbright, who is a senator in the US, um, with the goal of sort of improving, I guess, soft power relations from a US standpoint mm-hmm. by both sending... Uh, American scholars to study at key institutions around the world and then what Fulbright's probably more known for, selecting students from all around the world that could then go to study at top institutions in America with the goal being they'd form kind of like relationships with students, they'd they'd develop an affinity, um, you know, probably or a desire to to constructively work with America and it would just lay the foundations for hopefully a more um, positive, uh, harmonious, diplomatic set of relations over time. Yep, yep. So I was very fortunate to get the opportunity uh, with an Anne Wexler um, public policy scholarship, one of the great um, legends of public policy that had a strong history across Australia and the US, to go and study at Harvard and do my master's in public policy. Started uh, ill-fated timing, uh, 2019. I so I got nine months into living in Cambridge and, and being at Harvard and then unfortunately uh, March March of 2020, campus closed and I got back to Australia two days before the hard border went up and did all the rest of my degree online, night shift from sort of 10pm to 6am for 
just over a year. So uh, it was not the experience that I uh, wanted it to be by any stretch of the imagination. It's not the experience I wanted you to have. No, thank you for that. Um, but at the same time, it was honestly one of the more extraordinary periods to be studying policy in. You know, when you think about it, and this is quite extraordinary, sort of how life life imitates art, um, We the exercise they make you do at the end of your year, one of your masters, is this thing called spring exercise, where you pause and you down tools and you go to work exclusively on one project uh, for two, three weeks. And it's designed by a rotating member of faculty. So this one was designed by the chief of staff to Obama's defence secretary. And so he'd built a scenario, and I kid you not, for the situation he thought the world was least prepared for, and he'd written a pandemic scenario. Yeah, yeah. And then as we enter into it, in March of 2020, the world is in a pandemic. And so it swapped from all of a sudden us doing work for fictitious clients to actually you know, teams of classmates working to support Cambridge Public Schools and how you'd return kids to school safety. You know, my group were working for the Department of Homeland Security giving advice on how you'd reopen uh, air travel with Europe. And and so it was fascinating to be, you know, thrown in the thick of that. But also, you know, we don't really have such a unified challenge and such a divergence of approaches right. in the way that we have at that moment. Well, speaking of divergent approaches, mm. um, it was, it's been really interesting reading about Sweden lately. So... Um, if you go back to the beginning of the pandemic, and we all know that the Swedes, uh, you know, they, they behaved entirely differently. They did differently, yep. Yeah, and they were asked, so the chief health officer was asked, so what are you doing? And he said, well, what we're doing is we're doing what the World Health Organization told us to do. We got out the playbook hmm. that was written, um, should a pandemic hit, here is the playbook. And all we're doing is implementing what we were told to do by the World Health Organization, which is, I think, really interesting mm-hmm. because um, that's not exactly how the rest of the world behaved. And then you look at excess deaths. And the Swedish excess deaths, are, it, it actually, there's, it's sort of moderate, right? It, there's, no, there's, no, uh, f- there's no numbers that are indicating they catastrophically made the wrong call. Interesting. So it is an interesting... It's an interesting th- conversation about behaviour, about human behaviour, about, uh, about I think, political behaviour. Mm-hmm. You know, what does leadership look like when everyone's panicking? Well, le- and, and did I create the panic? <laughs> you know? How do you reflect on leadership in this country during that time? I, I think, for me, it was a wonderful opportunity for us to change the way we lead in Australia. I think, um, you know, what, what's the government going to do about it is a, a lot of the undercurrent in terms of how we operate. And I think there was an opportunity for the government to actually definitely set criteria. Right, here is what is okay and here isn't, here's what isn't okay. But I'm not so keen on uh, black vans driving around the streets and uh, people being shot at with rubber bullets. <laughs> so how does that land with you, Holly? <laughs> right? Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I think it was a fascinating, you know... It was fascinating for a whole raft of reasons. I mean, if you had told anyone in their right mind in 2019 that we would find ourselves in a situation where curfew would be imposed and we'd have, you know, people doing uh, laps around the suburb. Like, I remember, it it sounds funny, but, like, it was was acute for me at the time because I was living, uh, you know, moved back unintendedly, obviously, with the close of campus. I was trying to do study through the night. I had housemates. I couldn't do that uh, in, in the house. So there was a reality around needing to try and go to a space where I could work out of. And you literally, to start at 10 p.m., it was after curfew. So there was this genuine concern of, oh, my gosh, am I going to find myself with thousands of dollars of fines for going out and being able to try and find a space where I can work through the night to do 
study. It was extraordinary. Which in itself is nonsense. It, 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 it yeah. was. I mean, the extremity <laughs> of, of that situation was hard to comprehend. Right. And I think it's interesting too, to your point around, I've wondered on, on reflection, like to your point around Sweden, and I'm sure there are institutions, organisations, there will be for the rest of our lives who are doing longitudinal studies on COVID, whether it's about what happened to our kids at different key junctures, whether it's about, you know, the the responses of different leaders and what stacks up over time, you know, long COVID outcomes, all of that. Economic effect. Economic effect. Pumping pumping money into the economy, the inflationary effect. But I almost feel, and I don't know if you feel this way, Russ, I mean, I lived that two years here in Victoria. Um, you, You almost can't bring the subject up because there is almost a traumatic response. Yes, and so part of me wonders about the limitations of learning lessons when really people don't want to turn their minds back right. to it. The way I would, what I believe is that we were bent out of shape. Yep. And we haven't been put back in shape, and no. we ne- and we need to find a way. Maybe I, I think I'm right in saying that in the UK there's already been two COVID reviews, yeah, par- right. parliamentary reviews. In okay, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? We haven't had one here yet, um, nationally or, or. I think that's really important that we do that. Totally. Mm. Right. So let's let's. Learn from it. Yep. I, I find it odd that that hasn't happened. Now, you've spoken to some, I mean, here I am speaking to you, which is a privilege, but goodness gracious. Condoleezza Rice, Richard Branson, Julia Gillard, Barack Obama, the Dalai Lama, no less, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, the first humanoid robot, Sophia. That was a more unusual one. I've never had my yeah. guests put together out of a suitcase prior to my interview okay. <laughs> than in that one. I, I, look, I'm sure you would have been asked this question before. Who's the most impressive? <laughs> I mean, what way do you cut that I question? Know. You know, I know, I know, I know. so as you know, okay, no, too let, well, let me ask it a different way. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll ask it. So, Condoleezza Rice, one thing about her. Uh, oh, she is an extraordinary embodiment of the American dream. Love it, Richard Branson. One of the most curious individuals you will meet. He is always seeking to learn as much as he is seeking to offer. Did he have his exercise book with him? Yeah, he honestly writes right. notes. All that—that's what I mean. Yeah. He is continually searching for inspiration, ideas, suggestions. He is so curious. If he's on a panel, he will seek to hear more from other people sitting next to him than he will to contribute himself. And he's very introverted, which yeah. is very funny. I mean, I don't know if you find this funny, but I, as someone less um, in the world of branding, I find it extraordinary that you can create one of the most extroverted brands yeah. and brand identities yeah. when you're such an introvert. Well, it uh, didn't cost as much money. Julia, uh, <laughs> Julia Gillard. <laughs> um, really thoughtful and, and considered. Yeah, totally. Barack Obama? Unbelievably intellectual. I think we forget how professorial he is. Dalai Lama? Oh. Not as good as Barack. <laughs> when it comes to, you know... Uh, joy personified. I've never quite experienced energy from a person yeah. in the way that you do when you meet him. Malcolm Gladwell? Probably the brightest person I've ever interviewed. Nice. Sophia? <laughs> Surreal in the sense that you you know you are talking to a robot. For those who have seen Sophia, um, she she doesn't have hair and so you're, you're kind of aware with the configuration. They do put a blouse on her and they strangely put lipstick on her and they do a bunch yeah. of things. But <laughs> you get partway through the conversation and your brain starts to play tricks on you because they've the, the, the robotics have gotten so good that it's stuff like the muscles around the lips and yeah. things like that where you start to go, oh, my gosh, this feels oddly real. Yeah. And, and I, I'm capable in micro moments of slipping into the idea that I'm, I'm maybe not talking to a robot. Okay, it's so are you pro? Um, so Musk, is, Musk and a cohort of tech leaders 
are saying we need a six-month pause on AI. Mm. So it's interesting and I think – I'm not sure what that does. I don't know how you do it to begin with. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you, you, you do that. And secondly, I don't know uh, – so if we did that, what would it achieve? Uh, that's my second thing because I go, who is in that time going to step in and radically be able to set up institution ways of thinking, ways of working that right. are going to allow us to do it differently? I think there's a reality that the horse has bolted. Yeah. And so the, the conversation becomes more about, you know, how, how quickly do we do we try and play catch up here? But I don't mm. think we're going to be saved by trying to put put pause. And I also just think there's there's an absurdity to that suggestion in the idea that you can find a way in the the spread nature of the world as it stands right now. It's not like you can go and turn the, the power off at the the building next door to us, Russ, here and go, cool, we've stopped it for six months. Right. It's just not possible in that way. I was reading um, a Forbes article, Forbes yep. magazine article. Uh, I'm not quite sure when it was published. I know when I was reading it um, the other day. And it was a very interesting article and it, it sort of aligned with a conversation that I was having um, at a conference mm-hmm. around sustainability and net zero 2050. And what Forbes was saying is, okay, so... The, what we need to actually talk about is what does that look like? I'm going back to playbook here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really important part of that conversation. Right. So, I, I, well, I think the, it's the only part of the conversation okay. now, yeah. right? Because, because the need. Okay, we're going to go to 2050, zero by 2050. That's because the argument's been won that it's an, that there the right is thing a, to do. There, there's a need. Okay, yeah, I so agree. so let's not prosecute the argument. What hasn't been part of the argument is how totally what it looks like. So. It it may it may well look like that you will be you'll have your your flight travel will be budgeted. You're a citizen of the world. You're allowed to do one domestic flight a year. Um, you're a citizen of the world. You have to live in a 15 minute city. Mm-hmm. You're a citizen of the world. No longer can you have steak. Uh, it might look like that, and that that 2050 playbook I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. At a, at a company level, so one of the conferences I, I run is in Canada. It's called Energy Disruptors. And what's really interesting to your point, you know, when we started in 2017, you were trying to prosecute the argument. We sh- you were trying to make the case that this is something we need to engage in and we need to be thinking really seriously about a global c- community. And for those who know Calgary, which is where uh, it's based in Canada, it's kind of the epicentre of the oil and gas industry, a little bit like the WA in an iron ore sense yeah. of, of Australia. And versus 2022 when we ran our last one, People are on board now, um, but there is huge complexity in the how. And there's also a piece, and, and Russ, I don't know if this resonates with some of the work that you've done over the years, but there's also an unsexiness to the how. Like you're getting into yeah. the complicated math and the micro granular reality of what change looks like and, and whether that's in an internal supply chain standpoint or whether that's you know how quickly can we change literally the energy infrastructure that is supporting our entire nation. Um, and there's... There's not as much appetite to sit in that conversation. Which is, I mean, it really gets me a little angry if I'm yep. actually frank about it, Holly, because I don't know that the citizenry has been informed what this actually means. No, I would agree. And I, and I think the irony is there's a lot of citizenry who would resonate, and we see this in the data, right? Um, generationally, we see it more broadly around people who prioritise this as an issue and... I'm going to forget which um, which energy company I was reading it from, but prioritisation of the issue versus people who will then say pay that extra bit 
on their bill even to get their power generated from renewables source, yeah. which is just one example of the choices and the costs we might have to make to journey there as a whole community. Now, I'm totally appreciating the realities of the cost of living pressure in that, mm. but that is also a real part of the how. Like, we're going to have to find a way to make that work in a new economic model. Part of that's going to be borne by the consumer without question. Part of that's going to have to be on the reality of how organisations are going to have to change the way they they built, work, run, all of that. Mm. Um, but that's an example of this tension point, right, between those who resonate with the purpose and the idea and then the reality of, oh, it's going to cost me something, yeah. I've got to change something. Well, Ooh. yeah, I, 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 exactly that. And... Um there's not a lot of time. No. Right? So what is <laughs> it? to get our so, skates on. Yeah, by 2030, the government has, what, 40, 42% reduction, is it? It's 40-something mm. percent reduction by 2030. That's, what, three years away, seven years away. Uh, <laughs> so, which, which is kind of wild, isn't it? Well, 2030 felt so long ago for such a long time, and now you're going, wow, it's, it's less than a decade and counting. Right. And, and this so, stuff doesn't happen overnight. Right. So the playbook looks like X. Mm-hmm. And, again, I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by actually the reality the reality of a, of a zero by 2050. Um, I think one of the things you're touching on there too... Is it too, going to be a good life? Um, well, I think that's a great question. I mean, mm. there, there's a reality that it needs to be a reimagined life, certainly. It, it will look different and will have to look different to the way that it is right now. I don't think that that... Um, I, I would always be optimistic about our ability to create a good life within those constraints and within that new world order, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I think what you're picking up on is also an interesting part of the conversation too, that... Uh, climate change is so enormous and the way that we've had this conversation um, feels like it's external, feels like it's on someone else to make the decisions, it's on someone else to bear the cost. That's right. And that inability to personalise it uh, has been a real part of the communication um, shortcomings, Uh, maybe not failures because I I think we're we're at that point where we really need to focus on that component to realise what does that mean for me uh, and, and what does that mean I need to change, do, consider because at this point, I feel like most people are overwhelmed by it. Um, there's a, a, it induces a lot of anxiety. We see that in a lot of the mental health data. People know that it's coming, but there's not an empowerment piece or a ability to make a choice because there's not an understanding of yeah. how does how does this show up for me? Yeah, and and the world the world doesn't behave in a homogenous fashion. Mm. Yeah, not so um, remotely, yeah, no. Let's even look at so let's look at India, right? So. The best, the best thing the West could do is to make India as, um, even more successful as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. That's going to burn a whole lot of carbon. Absolutely. <laughs> so I don't, what do we do about that? Yeah, and that's the frustration of a lot of um, you know, developing economies, right? Well, you've all gone through your industrialization processes and got out the other side right. and the point at which all of a sudden the climate conversation is biting hard, for the want of a better phrase – is at the point where we're in the same phase of our growth mm-hmm. and trying to get as many of our people, you know, to move into the middle class and beyond and realise a new level of potential where we can reconfigure things then and make different economic choices because we're at a certain level of, of scale of economy, standard of living, etc. They're at a very different point in their journey. Right. So um, one of my colleagues at Sayers Group, Genevieve, she said, look, I, I'd love you to ask Genevieve's very successful young woman. Um, she wants to be more successful. Um, you know, she's got, and I think she will be, but she has asked me to ask you, give us some secrets. Secrets to, um, so uh, you, are, you are a young and successful woman and she wants to be equally so. Give, us some, give her some hints, some good, tips. Good question. I think I would come back to what I feel like I've been very much the beneficiary of. So I'd say one of the more important things in my life has been the role of mentors and so finding people that you can tap into um, that have walked a similar path to the one you might hope to walk, that have been able to 
embody the sort of values that you want to be able to embody in your career, whatever way you define true north for yourself, the idea that you can go and like, – one of the most empowering phrases in my life, and this is going to sound so strange because it's so simple – was hearing a very successful person on stage, you know, in my first sort of leadership forum in an 18 wide-eyed in the United States, hearing this prolific entrepreneur on stage talk and he said, you know, how long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Hmm. Could have heard tumbleweed roll through the room at that yeah. moment. You know, all of us were like, well, what's the answer to this big question? Yeah. Uh, he yeah. said coffee. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Not like, much. It is, <laughs> yeah, it is, is that easy. And the thing, you know, that, that I have been continually humbled and astounded by is that there is such a willingness from successful people to pay forward their learning and their experience to people who they can see have a genuine desire to put it to work. People's most powerful and valuable resource is their time. They don't want to waste it. But if they can understand your why and why they can add value to you, um, over and over again, uh, people have just been so generous with their ability to offer me insight, guidance, support, whatever it might have been. And I would say to Genevieve, you know, think about who those people are for you. And I always think you kind of need, you need a couple of S's in that mix. You need a sage or two. So someone who's kind of been there, bought the t-shirt, done it, can give you the ins and outs. So when you hit challenge points, you're not uh, creating mediocrity. You can copy a bit of genius in that. I think you need some supporters. There will be points where it all feels a little bit too hard and a little bit overwhelming. And so you need some cheer squad members who can circuit break for you in those moments and say, You've got this, can encourage you, can kind of hold your hand as you take your next step out off the ledge and take another risk. I think you need some sponsors in that. Yeah. Um, you know, people that are actually, you know, one of the things I've learned working in a lot of change projects uh, over the journey is more often than not the conversation about you, whether it's about an opportunity, whether it's about whether your idea gets up or whether you get licensed to run that project that conversation is going to take place in a room you're not even in at a time where you're not even aware it's going on. So that need to have some people that are in there saying, Genevieve's awesome, like absolutely, she's the one that should get this job or this opportunity. That's going to be really important. And then finally, uh, I think uh, you need some sparring partners and you need some people who are going to, and Adam Grant talks about this a lot and, and he refers to it as challenge network. And we've had a lot of conversations about it over the last couple of years. Those people that are going to be, pushing back on you, helping you refine your thinking, um, saying, well, this is what I think, so overcome my argument and, and working on on that element of things, that feedback loop almost so you can become more effective in how you make your case or uh, more refined in the way that you're prosecuting your argument, whatever it might be. Uh, there's a piece there around the, the sparring partners. And I think more often than not, and I've been polling people for a little while on this, people seem to fall down on that one. If they're missing one of the four, they're oh. probably missing that one. Yeah. I have to say, Holly, I, I like that a lot. So, Genevieve, I hope you're listening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the notion of a sage, the supporter, sponsor and sparring partner, um, you know, that's pretty good stuff, Holly. That's outstanding stuff. This is Freddie. Okay. Uh, so, Freddie does the um, sales conversation producing, but I also um, ask Freddie uh, at a roundabout now <laughs> if there's anything he'd like to ask um, our guest. Um, and uh, so I'll ask you, Freddie. What have you got, like? Freddie? Yeah, right. what have you got, mate? Uh, thank you, Russ, and thank you, Holly. Um, uh, with all your experience uh, as an interviewer, um, I would like to ask you uh, what are the hallmarks of a really good question 
And coming at it from the other perspective, uh, what are the hallmarks of a really good answer? Jeez. <laughs> oh, Jeez, great. Is that a whole podcast? Great, I know. <laughs> we could spend hours on that. Yeah, good, I love the good, question. It's good, such a producer question too. I love that too. Good question, good answer. Oh, yeah. brilliant. Um, I'm going to answer your one about uh, questions maybe maybe more simply than you might have been searching for. So you can feel free to, to come back to me on it. But I've always believed... The hallmark of a great question is one that you genuinely want an answer to yeah. and where you're following your innate yeah. curiosity. And the reason I say that is I think and, – and we've all been in rooms where you've sat and listened to someone ask what are clearly formulate questions, what are clearly questions they feel like they have to ask, which are clearly questions that are motivated by some other purpose or someone else's reasons versus when you hear a conversation where there's genuinely I'm following a line of thought that I'm interested in and that comes from a place of listening too. I think the best questions come from active listening. Yep. And that is actually why, it, you know, when, we're, when you're present in an, in an interview conversation, it's actually quite a draining exercise energetically because the demands on you as a listener, you should be really present in the conversation. So as much as you've prepared and you've done all your research, you prepare so you can adapt. And the great question is actually the one that you probably haven't planned for but comes off the back of something that someone shared where you're going, well, tell me more about that. Oh, that's mm. really interesting. Or that's just made me think about this and I may not have thought about that previously. So I think sometimes we've – it's a bit like the socialisation where we stop asking questions in general. You want to see peak question asking, go and meet a four-year-old girl. They ask about 100 questions a day and research tells us it's it's sort of the, the highest number of questions in dem- any demographic, full stop – by the time we've hit a teenager, we're down to double digits and behind the time we've left university, we're generally at single figures a day. And I think similarly, alongside that socialisation, we get these layers of sort of what's the acceptable question to ask. Like I watch it play out in meetings all the time. You see yeah. sort of a certain pattern of, of questions that are obviously the right ones to ask that are kind of not taking a risk but kind of letting people know that you're intelligent or letting people – you know, they're playing another performative type of role or something like that. Yep. yep. So that would be my answer to that. I think the response I'd give to the answer side would be it, it is something that genuinely answers the question. Um, my most frustrating interviews on an interviewer side are when a guest that I'm interviewing, and it happens more often than you'd think, clearly has points that they want to take you to or stories that they want to share and it is not the question that you've asked. And like a politician, they will find a way. And Russ, you must have had this so many times on radio, right? They will find a way of taking you back to what they want to talk about yeah. versus actually answering the question. And, and by contrast, the ones who blow your mind are the people who can meet you anywhere and kind of tap into their world because these are deep experts. They know their stuff inside and out. But they can find a way of making that bridge or they know their subject matter well enough, they can knit it together in a way where they're actually addressing the question. I don't know if you felt the similar frustration, Russ, but that's well, something that drives me nuts as an interviewer. Yeah, well, no, we have a lot of fun on our radio show with a, with a not really a segment, but a call-out. Why don't you talk properly? Which, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like... And it's, I understand, I do understand why... Um, why we get to that point. And yeah. In live media, I, don't, I actually don't think there's any excuse in a podcast because it's not live. But True. In live media, I, I, I understand because in the end, you know, once you've said it, you've said it and True. it's live and it's out there in the world. So I get that it can be a nerve-wracking experience and, and as a result you can get into vanilla language or you can just, you know, read your notes, mm-hmm. you know, that the PR person has given you. Mm. Just as a little, just a little aside, I think one of the, one of the great... Problem is too big a word, but I, I I think it's disappointing. In Australia, a lot of the relationship that, let's say, business and politics, 
maybe in particular business, the relationship they have with the media doesn't really take into account that the media are potentially very interested in your story. They're not out to get you, unless, of course, you've done something that you that it's fair enough that they're out to get you, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I think a lot of media training is designed around be careful, the media is out to get you, mm. as opposed to actually the media provides you with an opportunity in order to build your brand, build your business for free. If you're being interviewed, I mean, this is Branson's genius, right? Branson's genius is, he knows, PR is cheaper than advertising. Mm-hmm. Every so, day of the week. Right? So it, it's, it is, it, well, look at how Americans deal with the media. The Americans deal with the media in a, it, it's objective, it's parent to parent, it, it isn't parent to child. Um, and as a result, I think they do better media. So why have we developed that culturally? Like, what's the chicken and the egg there? Who went first? Oh, look, it, it may well go right down to um, we. <laughs> it's an authority thing, I think. Mm. In the end, I think ultimately that's probably what it is, um, and um, that maybe even allows us to circle back to how we dealt with the pandemic. It's an authority thing. I think we like it. We like, or where we we believe authority is. Um, the loudest voice, and we're going to do what the authority says. So if you own you the mic, then you've got some authority. But, you know, I, I think it's nonsense. Mm. I really need to very quickly say it's nonsense. Have you found that that has habituated them, to the leaders more generally, to communicate like that in all aspects then? Or do you find, like, we've, we've obviously got this whole conversation around social media, everyone's got a platform now, you yeah. know, so they can, uh, you know, avoid bypass going to the media and they can all speak from their own platform but what i find on the whole is that doesn't lead to very different communication no that's right and it, it doesn't lead to different communication and unfortunately um as we all know it, it, it does lead you into extremes mm. which is a bit disappointing um and i think that we need to practice i'm going to get a little bit cra- a little bit up here i'm intrigued we need to practice democracy in the end you've got to practice it and i'm not that sure that social media actually is a core tool of democracy. Mm. I can see it as being part of, but but the notion that we um, we use media to communicate, it media uses itself to hold people to account. Um, it is part of, let's call it the dance, the dance that is the dance that is society. We're all on it, we're all on the dance floor. Um, the judges are there, the lawyers are there, the politicians are there, the business people are there, the media is there, the unions are there. Everyone is on the same dance floor mm-hmm. and it's part of the dance. And I just think that maybe social media is maybe it's, you know, in, in the ante room. Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Any further qu- any thoughts <laughs> on that, Holly? No, I like that. I mean, it's yeah. something to, to ruminate on. I was going to say, you know, it's in the toilet, but that's not right <laughs> because I think social media does, there's a lot of upside. There is. Right. There is. But also, I, I think one of the things, just, and this is by virtue of the lack of transparency around the manipulation of algorithms and some That's of the right. things that have come out over the last 10 years, right? Where, whether it's the Cambridge Analyticas, whether it's learning things about how Instagram's manipulated their algorithm, you know, to the detriment of, you know, particularly teenage girls and their mental health right. outcomes and all manner of things, right? right? Or, so or experiments to try and drive advertising outcomes by right. changing is your newsfeed positive or negative and what does that do to your click through rates? So, why do we put up with this? Totally, and I think because, unfortunately, you're not aware of what's going on off until after the no, fact. No, but the people that are making the regulations are 100%. aware of it. So the, the idea that government doesn't treat social media as media, it is media because the revenue they receive is via well, advertising, like media does, 
and mainstream media is regulated. Totally. I mean, this is the Section 230 debate in America, right? right? Where you're looking at it and going, should there be culpability for, you know, what's placed on platforms in the way that you would have culpability as a media outlet for what is published on your radio show or what, sorry, the views that are communicated by your radio presenters That's or right. what is published in the paper or on any given day. So I think this is a really interesting tension point that we've certainly not resolved but at this it, moment in time effectively. It strikes me as that it's odd that it hasn't been resolved because Agreed. it's been, I reckon it's... It, oh, this speaks to lobbying more than anything. Right. It, well, yeah. It was that, It was clear that we were going down this rather, you know, dirty path at least a decade ago. Mm. I think it's really tragic. We need to get moving on something. I, I'm not sure what it is. Um, I, I, what do I want? I, I probably I should declare total self-interest. I want everyone to listen to the radio. <laughs> I love Every it. morning. <laughs> well, I think about it too, you know, to loop back to something we, we've kind of started talking about at the top end of the podcast. We talk about high performance and everything that you know about high performance speaks to environment. And we think about environment, you know, there's always an element of whether we're talking about football clubs, you know, the environmental design, how we set up everything there from the quality of the facilities to the messaging that's reinforced to the way that we look after the space, sweep the shed style in the All Blacks philosophy you know, that plays into whether we can produce an outcome. Mm-hmm. One of the things I find interesting that I, I don't think we're deliberate enough about, even individually, and I'm guilty of this, you know, repeatedly as well, is our digital environment having a critical impact on our performance in every way, shape or form. Right. And, you know, when we look at the time suck that it is, the amount all of us spend scrolling, the amount all of us, you know, there is not in every study that's been done a single social media platform that you feel net positive after spending time scrolling on. Uh, and so why are we doing it? When we uh, think about putting ourselves in a space to be fulfilled and productive and yeah. all of that to connect meaningfully, it, it does none of it. Have you and got a space have you got a space um, away from screens for writing? Uh, yeah, well I, I find so one of the things that that I've made a habit of doing is um, phone free Fridays. So the moment I get home on a Friday till the next day, I, yeah. I put the phone away entirely and I just find that's such a great way of decompressing and disconnecting Good. at the end of the week. Good. And then I'm a big fan of the do not disturb function, so the ability to switch off all notifications, put it in another room. Even the data around having your phone in the same room as you, even if it's face down versus if it's somewhere else, face around retention work. and recall. It's fascinating, the studies on this. They yeah. are, smartphones are making us dumb. Oh, no. It's um, so good, right? Yeah. I love it. And Well, it mean, it's smartphone means you actually don't need to have a memory anymore, do you? Mm-hmm. Right? It's just that that in itself. Is oh, I mean, we joke all the time, right? What do we do before Google? Uh, well, <laughs> it's, it's very part of our, on our radio show. One of the exercises, well, one of the rules, I have to say not a strict rule, but pretty strict rule, no, no, no phone, no Google. Mm. Yep. So you you have to exercise the mind, and now of course you will do a sneaky Google every now and then because it's <laughs> like anyway. All that aside, so um, Holly, you said you know what's a good question? Well, a good question is of course as you articulated, it's something where you genuinely want to know the answer. So what's next for Holly? Oh, great question. Uh, oh look, uh, I mean, I don't know that I have a, a profound answer to that question in the sense of you know anything. Um, crazily new i'm i'm loving everything that i am doing right now i've got a really interesting portfolio of you know organizations i'm working with doing more and more work overseas in terms of getting to host really interesting conversations and work with really uh, large companies which is fantastic um and i think one of the other things that we've we've piloted since i wrote my book the leading edge you know limitation as you know all too well and your listeners will too around how many people read and then to what we linked back to earlier those that read and then 
do something profoundly different after reading a book in terms of changing a habit or trying something new. There's also a, a mm-hmm. bit of an imperfect uh, road or pathway there. So one of the things we did is we gamified the book and have moved into the world of leadership, product development and technology. And so we've got this thing called the Epic Challenge where we've tried to gamify leadership development. So taking what we have, have used in many ways for technical skill development, whether we're talking about language or whether we're talking about math learning or anything like yeah, that. That's good. But take it to soft skills Smart. and in a way where we can democratise, to use one of your words earlier, leadership development. Because what we're really good at is investing at the top of the triangle. Um, we are really good at sending our CEOs, our secretaries of department, whatever, off to do courses and programs and what have you. And when it, it strikes me, there are a couple of pain points that society bears the outcomes for, but certainly we do inside our organisations downstream as well. In We don't often invest in early stage leaders or first-time people leaders. And there are a couple of pain points. There's time barrier, there's a network barrier, and there's um, a money barrier. Uh, so if you don't have the money to be able to go off and take yourself to an INSEAD course or you've got caring responsibilities so you can't take out two nights a week to do your MBA or whatever it might be, you often can't get access to this learning. If you're not lucky enough to work in an organisation where they put this sort of stuff on or where your cohort in the organisation, the people that get to come on the days that they do, you don't get the benefit of access to this learning. Um, so what we wanted to do was create a product that could help break down that wall. And so we've just finished sort of our beta testing. We've been running some public challenges, but I'm really excited to take this into some organisations and actually work with large cohorts of um, their first-time people leaders and emerging leaders and see what this can do for talent development. Great. It sounds like a good thing to be doing next. So, um, Holly, I've, I've learned a lot. It's been really great having a chat to you. Thank you for your time. I, I'm particularly happy with your answer for Genevieve. <laughs> right. So the notion, the four S's, I think, is what mm. we've got to. So uh, sage, supporter, sponsor and someone to spar with. Uh, brilliant insight and I'm sure everyone that's listening would have really all would have written that down just like me Holly thank you very much for your time thanks for having me Russ and Freddie